before we open God's word, I want to take a minute just to talk to you about what we were doing this last weekend. A number of you are aware, most of you are aware that we were doing visioning work about what, what are we trusting God for next as a church? What do we want to be celebrating that God has done three to five years from now? So many hours went into preparing for that week end, and then as a leadership team, we spent nine hours meeting over the weekend talking about these things. And one of the things we did is we considered very carefully the congregational survey that uh, many of you did uh, prior to just in December there. And one of the, I'm going to be rolling out some of the numbers from that in the weeks to come, but one of the really encouraging numbers that came out in that survey was that 68% of you said three years from now, because the, the walk with Jesus is a progressive thing, 68% said, we want to be living missionally for Jesus, where Jesus is the center of my life. He's the one I think of first when I get up, when I go to bed at night. I'm going to be very responsive to what he would have me do. I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. I'm going to be pointing people to Jesus. This is an incredibly encouraging and hopeful statistic that so many people in our church are saying, uh, this is where I want to be walking with Jesus three years from now. So we considered that. Uh, The team that was together on the weekend I was just, it was so cool how vulnerable they were with one another, how I think God just deeply impacted their life, and they shared some of the great hopes and dreams that they have. Um, There was a ton of work done, and we came, uh, we recorded so many people's answers to so many questions that we looked at, and there's some major unifying themes that came out. And so then the next step will be we'll have a little team of four people that will take those things and collate them and boil them down a little bit. And then this whole team, the whole team will gather again here in the coming weeks to say now out of these succinct major themes, what are the things that we believe with all our heart that God is calling us to in these next steps that we would celebrate him for three to five years One of the things that was very exciting is that there just was a lot of hope in the room. Uh, We shared some of those statistics you heard earlier. And those are just numbers, but what they represent is people. And people matter to God. They matter to God. They're the people for whom Jesus died. And so there's a lot of hope and a lot to praise Jesus for. Let me pray with you for a moment. Father, as we bow now and we look into your word, how we invite you to be powerfully present to speak as only you can speak. May it penetrate my heart first, but then each person that hears this, whether they're in the room or listening online, we pray these things and ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. He was an old man, close to death. And I was about 20 years old. And I watched him enter the platform from a side door. And he couldn't really walk. He kind of shuffled. But the thing you noticed right away is he was dressed in like a three-piece suit. This was a number of years ago. Had a tie on, all that stuff. 
But as he walked and shuffled across the platform, he didn't have any shoes on, just had socks. And I'm going, what's going on? No shoes, why just socks? He told a number of stories that day, and one of the stories he told us included the truth that one time in his life, he spoke eight words, eight words. And the person in front of them dropped to their knees. And in an incredibly dramatic, life-changing manner, surrendered their life to Christ and changed them for all eternity and for the rest of their life. This is an illustration of the great exchange, which we're going to be talking about today. And you're probably wondering, why didn't this guy have any shoes on? And what were those eight words? We'll talk about that in just a few minutes' time. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. It's over towards the right if you're in your hard copy or if you're using your device. 1 John, chapter 2. It's right close to the book of Revelation, um, <clears throat> past Hebrews, past James. Just keep going a little bit to the right. One of five books that the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend, wrote in the New Testament of Scripture. Before I read those verses, let me just say a couple of things. How a conversation starts often determines how the conversation ends. And so if there's a harsh startup to the conversation, there's often a harsh ending to the conversation. In this passage that I'm about to read to you, it could be quite easy for you when you first hear it to get offended, to almost become adversarial in your approach, to get defensive. Because some of the things he says is he says, you have sin in your life. He says, you murdered God. He says, some of you are liars. I don't like to be called a liar. I don't know about you. But is that, all, is that all that's going on in the passage? Listen to it carefully as I read it. And as I read it, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what Jesus commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. 
But whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, for he does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded him. The blindness has de- bl- darkness has blinded him. And so he begins this section, and then in the middle of the section, he restates it again. He says, my dear children. He doesn't start out with, you bunch of liars. You murdered God. No, he begins with, and repeats it later, my dear children. This is very important, because what God is doing is God is telling you who you are, before he tells you what to do. We often forget this. God tells us who you are before he tells you what to do. He's saying, and this is a great principle to go through life with, no correction without connection. No correction without deep-seated connection. This is a very good lesson to keep on mind when, in mind when you're relating to your spouse, if you're married, or if you're a parent and your child. And so John is 80 plus years of age. He's walked with Jesus for at least 60 years at this point. We've talked about in the previous parts of this series in the book of 1 John, how God had and Jesus had redirected John, used to be the sons of thunder. Now on clear evidence throughout the book of 1 John, we see John exhibiting the father heart of God. And it's like as he writes this passage that he's sitting down on the couch and he says, huddle around. And he's saying, you know, I got something to talk to you about. But first, I want you to know how much I love you, my dear children. I want you to know how much I'm for you. He sets the tone in which he's saying, I care for you. I'm here for you. I want to help you. Later in the book, he calls them the beloved. You are the beloved of God. And it's very inviting. And he's exhibiting the God, God's father heart for us. This is something I referenced last week, I say again, because a lot of people that are followers of Jesus have trouble either grasping this or holding on to this. As Christians, we work from our identity in Christ, not for our identity. As Christians, we work from who we are in Christ, not for who we are in Christ. This is an illustration of the great exchange, from versus for. It's the thing or one of the things that differentiates Christianity from every other religious system in the world, the great exchange. And so the way we approach people and spouses and co-workers and children and even our enemies, which are talked about in this passage, it's really not just about saying the right things. It's doing it with a heart of affection and well-being and concern for that person. So in verses 1 and 2, as we move through the passage systematically, um, we're told that Jesus died for your sins. We sang about this earlier in one of the songs that was beautifully illustrated. 
And in essence, what, what John is suggesting is in a broad stroke kind of way, you can put your sin to death. Now, our goal all through the scriptures is not to sin. We never meet that goal entirely, this side of heaven, but that is the goal. John says, if anybody does sin in these opening verses, and the idea behind this is, and he understands this, because we will, because we're fallen humanity. He illustrates to us and he says to us, understand the difference between a sin and a mistake. A sin is anything, we talked about this a little bit last week, but in a slightly different way, we'll say this about it this week. A sin is anything against the word of God, the will of God, or the way of God. The word, the will, or the way of God. Mistakes, on the other hand, are not something we deliberately do. These things happen. And in fact, some ways, there's some positivity to them because we learn from them. And we become better when we make mistakes that we didn't deliberately do. It happens sometimes. But some people don't understand this about the heart of God. And so, for example, this dad, and I don't know his name, but he was in this restaurant in Red Robin with his family and his little kid. I don't know how old the little boy was, but I'm guessing around three years of age. The server gives Junior this big drink. It's got ice in it. There's condensation forming on the glass. It's slippery. His little hands, he tried to pick it up, and of course, he spilled it. Accidents happen. Mistakes happen. But the dad didn't like that. And this particular dad took him and spanked him. Understand this. That's not the heart of Father God. Spilling that drink was not a sin. That little shaver didn't do that on purpose as an act of rebellion. It was a mistake. It was an accident. If anything, maybe I could suggest this. Maybe that dad should have spanked himself for not getting his son a lid for the glass or whatever, or a smaller glass that he could handle. God understands that we, his children, will make mistakes. He doesn't treat it like a sin. That idea should affect how we treat one another, how we raise our kids. The way God parents us is how we should parent our kids. And by the way, if you want to read a great book on how to be an effective parent, read the Bible. Read the Bible. It's chock full of a way to be an effective and great parent. But in these opening verses, John holds up God's standard, which is sinless perfection, because this is indicative of his nature. But he acknowledges fallen humanity, because we do sin. And so he talks, as is this series that we're talking about, the whole book of 1 John, we're calling this series The Real Jesus. And because we are fallen humanity... He talks about the real Jesus, and he says in these first two verses, and we sang about it, as I said, I think the second song we sang, we have an advocate in Jesus who speaks and who acts on our behalf. He is, the verses say, capital R, capital O, the righteous one. 
He made the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He paid for our sin in full. The technical term here, and some of your versions will translate it this way, is that he is the propitiation for our sin. The fact that Jesus is righteous means that Jesus is without sin. He never once violated the word, the will, or the way of God. And if, if you'd like to, you can picture these opening verses like a courtroom drama where God is the judge, we are the accused, Satan, who is the liar, the deceitful one, the roaring lion, the one that wants to destroy you, that wants to take you down with his sunken ship, is the one screaming insults and accusations at you. And Jesus is our advocate. He's our lawyer in that sense. He's speaking and acting on our behalf. And his opening statement goes something like this. I have paid the penalty in full for the accused. I am the substitute. Look to me, not to them. I've provided the great exchange on their behalf. I've paid for their sinful actions in full. Their debt is zero. I have atoned for their sin. And I make this grace-filled offer to them. And then to each and every person in the world to either accept what I've done for them or reject it. And we all have that choice to make. Also in that survey that we did with the congregation in, in uh, December, about 9% of the people that responded to that survey, it was a very high percentage of people that responded to the survey, about 9% of the people said, I'm still in process. I haven't come to the place where I've embrace Jesus Christ. And so I'm on the journey, I'm seeking him, and then later, I'll give you the number another time, a very high percentage of them said, I want to embrace Jesus, and I want to come into healthy and maturing relationship with him. And so Jesus says to each one of us here, and for those that are just checking God out here, that he has made this possible for you. He invites you to receive it, this grace-filled offer. Now, because God is perfect, the scripture tells us, in every, every way and in all his characteristics, because he is perfectly good, because he is perfectly loving, because he is perfectly merciful, because he is the God of light, which we talked about last week, and we talked about and sang about this morning. And in him there is no darkness. There's no mixing it together. But equally true, God is holy. God is perfectly just. In fact, the fact that God is holy, that attribute is mentioned more about God than any other attribute in Scripture. And as we've learned in 1 John, and as we're hearing again here in this passage, every one of us have done sinful things. And this offends the holiness and the just nature of God. Even though he loves you perfectly, he cannot tolerate the sinful choices every one of us makes. And so as holy God, 
Because God can never deny who he is. His nature hates sin. Can't stand it, won't have anything to do with it. He loves people perfectly, but he hates sin with a passion. And he cannot deny his nature. He cannot deny who he is. And so it broaches this, 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 this overwhelming question almost. How can God deal with our sin without destroying the person he perfectly loves? We said last week, I'll say it again, in the Old Testament, there's this incredible imagery where the people of God acknowledge and confess their sin, and then an animal was used as a substitute to die in their place. And this satisfied the just nature of God, the wrath of God against sin. And in that sense, the animal propitiated or diverted away the choices the people in the Older Testament made. And all the Old Testament is about this substitution. And it all looked forward to the time when Messiah would come, when the perfect Lamb of God would come. And in the New Testament, John the Baptist, not John who wrote the book we're reading, but the cousin of John, John the baptizer, John the Baptist, who was born just a few months before Jesus and whose mission was to prepare the way for Jesus' public entrance into ministry. One day, John the Baptist is doing his ministry and he sees his cousin Jesus coming towards him and he says to everybody in a very loud voice, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything they looked for in the Old Testament. Everything that happened to Jesus should have happened to us. Everything. Jesus is in the courtroom and he says something like this. Scott is 100% guilty. Not 90% guilty. Not 95% guilty. Scott is 100% guilty. But I am taking all of Scott's guilt upon myself. And I am receiving everything that Scott so richly deserves. And I am satisfying the holy nature of God the Father by doing this. And I make this offer to each and every living human being. Their penalties, if they'll receive it, is paid in full. And this points us to one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this. Paul is writing, and he said, God made him, meaning Jesus. God made him who knew and had no sin. Because he is the righteous one. Remember, we read that in 1 John. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And in the words of the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, he looked at that verse and he said, this is the great exchange. Understand something very clearly. Foundational 
in this church is the cross of Jesus Christ. It all points to that. And there is no decision more important in life that you will make as an individual about what you're going to do about the cross of Christ. And the Father's heart for you is that you have this advocate. And if you are a Christian, God doesn't punish you because he's already punished Jesus. This allows God, because of his nature, to hate sin because he's holy and still love us because he's perfectly loving. This allows God, because of his nature, to deal with sin and also forgive us. And so let me just say something super serious right now. There is absolutely zero need for you to sentence yourself to hell by rejecting Jesus Christ's sacrifice for you. It's not a matter of him wanting you to go to hell or even really sending you to hell. It's a matter of you choosing to go to hell. But he only does that willingly. He doesn't coerce you. He doesn't force you. And so each one of us makes the decision to accept or reject this. I invite you to accept it. I invite you not, not to leave here without having that settled. So how do I put sin to death? How do I sin less? How do I sin less? So John writes five books in the New Testament and in this book as well. And in the image of, of this passage, and so frequently in his, the books he wrote, there's this image of walking with Jesus. And he's saying, we are not perfect, even though positionally God theologically, he looks at us and he sees us positionally as perfect because of Jesus, and yet we still keep walking in life. So we're not sinless, this side of heaven. He, he sees us that way, and yet we keep walking. So we're not perfect, but there is progress. And so God looks at the person who is in Christ, and he says, where did they start? You know, they give their life to Jesus. Where did they start? Is there progress? Because once we meet Jesus, our sins are forgiven and he begins to shape us. He begins to change us. And we said this two weeks ago, he redirects us. And this is the heart that God has for each person. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we will reflect Jesus in and through our life. And so Jesus said, when I go to be at the right hand of the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit, um, the paraclete, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the person, the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he gives the Holy Spirit to those that are followers of Jesus to empower them to live a holy life to live a life of effective service. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, the whole shooting match is there in one verse. It says, once you were darkness, in other words, you were outside the family. You were not um, in the circle with God, not part of the family. Once you were darkness, now you're a child of the light. You have received the grace filled offer of Jesus Christ. You've come to faith in Christ. Once you were darkness, now you're a child of the light. Live as a child of the light should. So out of relationship with Jesus, he begins to shape us and we begin to live 
as a child of light should. And then the next number of, I think it's like eight or nine verses, describe what that looks like. Then it says in verse 17 and 18 how to do it. Because you're not expected to do it on your own. That'd be crazy. None of us can do that. It says in verse 17, understand what God's will is. In other words, this is for every Christian, without exception. Understand what God's will is. Keep on being filled This is how we translate from the Greek. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So when I get up in the morning, this is not about receiving Jesus as my Savior again, because that's already a done deal. This is about saying, this is a new day. And, And I'm excited to live this day for you, Jesus. I know I can't do it on my own. And so would you help me? I'm just, here. here I am for the day. I offer myself to you. Would you come and fill me with your spirit? Would you empower me to live a holy life, to make choices that honor you, faith-filled choices? And would you help me to live as Jesus would call me to live? Would you help me to serve as Jesus would call me to serve? And this is how we're called to continually be on that journey of being a progressive pilgrim with Christ. We don't have to be afraid to ask Jesus to plead our case. It says that in verse 1, he's our advocate. So someone says, well, Scott, I'm just going to be blunt with you, Scott. I have this habitual pattern of sin in my life. Sometimes it's called a besetting sin. What do I do with that? Well, some of the things I've already said, but let me add another layer. Just invite Jesus into that place. Be very, very upfront with him. Jesus, you know this is what's going on in my life. This is this top temptation that keeps rearing its head. And temptation is not sin, but I, I focus on this temptation and then I give into it. And it's this besetting sin. And so you invite Jesus into this specific place. And to use a computer term, you ask him to overwrite it. To move it out of your life. And I was reading about this, I won't use this guy's name, but I was reading about this guy, very, still alive, very godly leader of a large movement. He loves Jesus, loves his wife, loves his kids. And he was asked this once, how do you stay away from sin? And a very interesting response. At first he scrunched up his nose and he sort of said, well, I don't know. But then he thought about it for a little while and then he said, you know, I don't really think about sin. I just try to spend my time with Jesus. In fact, one of our elders yesterday said that. I just kind of pray to Jesus all through the whole day. I thought, that's a great answer, right? And so this guy, he goes, I don't really think about sin. I just try to spend all my time with Jesus. I hang out with him, and I find him just leading me away from my besetting sin. And the center of my life is not sin. It's my Savior. I pray against strongholds that the evil one has tried to establish in my life because we have power in Jesus' name. Not my power, his power. We are seated in the heavenlies, it says in Ephesians 2, in the throne room with God because of Christ. And so I pray against strongholds in Jesus' name and with the authority I have in Christ, I break the ties and the influences the evil one might have built up in my life in some way. In verse 7, he says, 
Um, I'm not writing a new commandment. And basically what he's saying to us, he goes, you know, if you have kids, you know sometimes you have to remind them of things. Uh, And we're like that. We don't learn or we don't listen or we forget. And so at times in sermons, you're going to hear me say the same thing. And, And the primary reason for that is because I need to hear it. Okay. So if you hear me say the same thing, it's because Scott needs to hear it. I need to hear it. But it just may be that you need to hear it too. And you're going to find, if you read through the Bible, you're going to find that it repeats itself. It'll say it in different ways, but it says the same thing repeatedly because we don't get it the first time. And in the same sense, he writes verse 8, and he says, I just want to remind you of the theme of light and darkness from chapter 1 we talked about. But then he moves into verses 9 through 11. He says, there are two kinds of people out there. Let me remind you of those verses. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Wow. Wow. Anyone who loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. So he's saying, John is saying, there's really two kinds of people out there. There's lip service people, and there's lifestyle people. Lip service people will say, I belong to Jesus. And they will say the right things. They might even outwardly appear that way. But at least in one area of their life, they continue to walk deeply in darkness. I hate people or I hate a particular person. Lifestyle people say I'm a Christian, I walk with Jesus, I live in the light, and I love people even people that don't deserve it. And there's a few of them kicking around, right? In Jesus' name and through the empowerment of the Spirit, I love people even that don't deserve it. And one of our goals here at the church is to open the Bible to learn and then to open our lives up to God in order to be more loving people because when you have good theology, when you understand God, when you understand what he's teaching in the word, when you have good theology, this promotes healthy relationships. A lifestyle Christian in the power of the Holy Spirit loves and forgives, has a generosity of spirit, is kind. Again, this is all a progressive thing where we're growing. Uh, Loves, is generous, is kind. When they do something wrong, which we all do, When they make a sinful choice, they own it. When the Spirit convicts them, they apologize, they repent, they ask for forgiveness, they make restitution when that's called for. A lip service person says that they follow Jesus, but if you sin against them, they're not going to forgive you. They're going to hold a grudge against you, and they might even end up hating you. And friends, this is a trajectory away from Jesus. And Jesus desperately wants to fix that person. He wants to walk with that lip service person. He wants to forgive that person so that they can be forgiving. He wants to love you so that you can be loving. 
And Jesus is, is saying, come back to me. Or come to me, whatever the case may be. It's obvious from that survey, but I've known this for many years, but pre-Christians are coming in here all the time. People that are not yet to the place where they're ready to surrender their life to Jesus, pre-Christian. And certainly when we leave this place, you're encountering pre-Christians all the time, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, whatever the case is. And at times they're going to want to know What's the baseline message of Christianity? And with a smile on your face and love in your heart, you're going to point them to Jesus. And the book of John says that Jesus, by his spirit, will convict them of sin, point them to truth, and point them to Jesus. But the one thing that can undermine that is if even one of us decides to hate another one of us. That brings darkness. That brings death. That opens the door to the demonic. So when we walk with Jesus, he cleanses us, and over time the Spirit helps shape us to reflect Jesus increasingly. So I'm watching, and he walks across. He didn't walk. He shuffled across the stage. Three-piece suit, tie. No shoes on. Just socks. Why? So I listened to him. I was intrigued. So Richard Wormbrandt was a pastor in a communist country before the Iron Curtain fell, prior to 1989, post-Second World War, prior to 1989. For 14 years, he was imprisoned by the communists, often tortured for his faith. They did many things to him, but one of the things they did to him is they beat his, the soles of his feet with rubber trudgeons so often that it was very difficult for him to wear shoes, hard for him to put them on. Because of his relationship with Jesus, he would often volunteer to take beatings on behalf of the other prisoners. Someone was sick or, or, or weak or whatever, when they would come to haul that prisoner away to interrogate them again and beat them and torture them, he'd say, take me instead. He lived on almost no food. They would give him what he called dirty soup every day, one piece of bread a week. He took, he said, I took a tithe, 10% of my meager rations, and I would give that to the people that were sick or unhealthy. After a number of years in prison, one of the guards that had tortured him regularly did something to offend the communists or whatever, and he was thrown in with Richard and the other prisoners. And most of the prisoners wanted to kill him immediately. They all hated him. Richard would have had every reason in the world to pummel this guy along with the other prisoners and to hate him. He had every reason to, but he didn't. He forgave that man and he loved that man. And after a while, this guard who is now the prisoner in there with him said to Richard, tell me about this Jesus that you're always talking about. <clears throat> tell me what he's like, but don't preach at me. <laughs> Just give it to me in a nutshell. 
And Richard said eight words to him. I think I can remember them. Here's the eight words as I remember 40 years ago. Jesus changed my life. Jesus is like me. This guard dropped to his knees and immediately repented of his sin and gave his life to Christ. Changed him for the rest of his life. Yeah. When you give your life to Jesus, the righteous one who paid for your sin in full, the one who is your advocate, our life will change. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. One of our leaders, Dan, is going to be up here at the front. Dan would be honored to pray with you. I'm going to just ask some of our other staff, like I see Brian out there and people, just to be, be aware, because I think the Spirit's at work in people's lives this morning. If you've never received Christ, and you, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to just invite you to do it now. And what that means is you're going all in with God. You've heard the stories. I'm not just talking here. You've heard the stories, okay? If you've never said, I've done sinful things, there's nothing I can do about it, only Jesus can forgive me. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, Lord Jesus. And I'm going to go all in with you. That's what it means, all in. It means surrendering your life to him, and he'll take you, and then he'll begin to reshape you. If you've never launched a relationship with Jesus like that, and you would like to receive Christ as your Savior. I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand. I hadn't planned to do this today, but if you'd like to receive Christ in this way, raise your hand, and you're indicating to God and to me that you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior. Just do it now. Okay, I'm not going to pressure you, but I will give you a chance. Okay. If you receive Christ, you can put your hand out. If you receive Christ today, I'm going to ask you, to just pray along with me and then go and tell someone else about it. You could tell Pastor Dylan or Pastor Aaron that we're up here because we'd like to just come alongside you and help you start to grow in Jesus. So if you want to receive Christ, pray along with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're my advocate. Thank you that you died in my place. I ask you to forgive me for my sin. Thank you for becoming my savior right now. I offer my life to you to be the the leader of my life. The one in charge of my life. And your agenda is now my agenda. And I receive Christ as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray. If you did that today, I'm going to invite you to go and tell someone. 
so that you can start to grow in your faith. And we're going to leave now. I'm going to close our time in prayer. If you'd like to be prayed for or prayed with someone about anything, maybe God spoke to you about something today. Our brother Dan is up here at the front. He's sitting. He'd be honored. Dan is one of the leaders in our church. He'd be honored to pray for you. Um, So let's just pray as we go. So Father, as we go, thank you that you don't expect us to live this kind of life on our own because frankly, I'm not even close. But we know that in you, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, we can reflect Jesus well. And it's such a good way to do life. Thank you for that. Thank you for the gift of salvation and the walk with you. And we pray these things now with deeply grateful hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless.